The church is a place where we suffer together. The church is a place where we carry one another's burdens and we seek to be ministers and ambassadors of God's comfort to those who find themselves walking through the dark night of the soul. This morning we're continuing our series on the book of Job and we're going to consider the middle section of Job where we see Job's three friends come and try to do just that, to minister and and comfort Job in the midst of his affliction. And our title for this morning, if you're taking notes, is Night, the Intervention. Just quickly, by way of review, two weeks ago we, we met Job, a man who, according to God, this is God speaking, Job was blameless and upright. He feared the Lord. But God allowed Satan to bring about a, a great affliction in his life. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his possessions. And he lost all of his ten children in, the matter, in a matter of minutes. And as if to add insult to injury or to add injury to injury, he was afflicted with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And so he sits on a garbage pile and he scrapes his sores with broken pieces of pottery. And yet in the midst of that, what we saw two weeks ago is that pain is never random. And we saw that our enemy is on a leash. We can take great hope and comfort in the midst of our afflictions, in our certainty that that's true. And then last week, Pastor Lance led us in consideration of Job chapter 3, where we see Job lamenting his suffering. Job pours out his heart to God. He expresses to God that he's in pain, that he's hurting, and he asks God to work. He even goes so far as to curse the day he was born. And what we saw in that text is that God invites us as a loving father to deal honestly with him in the midst of the suffering that we experience. And this morning we're going to consider what it looks like. We're going to take a shift from primarily Job's perspective to the perspective of these three friends. We're going to consider what it looks like to comfort people who are close to us when they experience affliction. And we've all found ourselves in this situation at some point, right? Someone near to us, close to us, a trusted friend, a family member, someone that we love, the floor just gives way underneath them. Their life is in shambles around them. They're walking through the dark night of the soul. And more than anything, we just want to say whatever we can say to help them, to encourage them, to to lift them up. So often trying to find something to say in those moments is like trying to find your way to the light switch in a dark room. We've all experienced that situation at some point. And that's the experience of Job's three friends. They're trying to comfort Job in the midst of his great affliction. And if you have any experience with the Bible at all, you probably know that in the final analysis, these three friends fail miserably at their attempt. But their example is recorded for us. It serves as a warning for our instruction. So what we're going to do is we're going to take this this chunk of Scripture and we're going to break it down into three categories, which are going to be our three points. Our points are this, comfort the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's where we're going this morning. We're going to cover a lot of text today, and the reason for that is there's a significant amount of repetition and rehearsing of the arguments from chapters 4 to chapter 31. So what we're going to do is just dip in at points to get a sense and a flavor of what these three friends are communicating, and we'll come back around and consider Job's perspective. So we'll have the passages on the screen behind me, or if you have fast fingers, you can follow along with us in your Bibles. Let's read together. From Job chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 11. This is the word of God. Now, 
When Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. So let's begin here as we look at comfort, the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, in these verses, we see the good. And the good is this. These guys show up. They get there, and they draw near to Job. You know, there's something really beautiful and wonderful about this. They hear what happened, and they just make an appointment, and they get to Job as quickly as they can. And we want to recognize this, guys, what comfort there is here. You know, it's a terrible thing to suffer, but it's a far worse thing to suffer alone. And so often the first order of business when someone we love experiences calamity is just to get there as soon as we can. Pastor Ray Cortese, who pastors down in Central Florida, was with us a couple of years ago, and he preached one of my favorite sermons I've ever heard. And in that sermon, he told uh, the story of when he was a brand new pastor. He's not a brand new pastor now, but uh, early on in his ministry, his brother passed away inexplicably. He was 35 years old. To this day, there's never been any explanation given for what happened to his brother. And Ray was tasked uh, with getting up and, and driving from Central Florida to Tallahassee to come and, and officiate the graveside service and speak words of comfort and hope on the occasion of the death of his brother. And as he tells the story, as he was driving, he was, he was thinking about the faces of his parents, having to look at his parents who had just lost their baby boy. And he was thinking about all that he was going through and what he was going to have to say to those people who had gathered to mourn the loss of his brother. He said he just felt empty emotionally. And as he pulled in to the cemetery, he looked up and he saw that there were two older saints from the small fledgling church that he was pastoring, standing outside the entrance to the cemetery. They'd gotten up at 5 a.m. that morning and driven to Tallahassee just so they could stand at the entrance to the cemetery so that their pastor would know as he drove in there on that day that he was not going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death alone. He said he was incredibly comforted and strengthened by their presence. It's a terrible thing to suffer. It's a far worse thing to suffer alone. And so Job's friends show up so that he won't have to. They minister to Job with their presence. They weep with him and they sit with him in silence for seven days. Many of you have experienced this before. It is such a mercy just to have someone draw near to you and enter in to your suffering. Years ago, uh, a friend and I attended an event in Atlanta, and after the event was over, we were driving back to Tallahassee. It was just north of Atlanta. We were driving south on I-85, and uh, there was a one-car accident in front of us. The car in front of us uh, pulled off the road and overcorrected and ended up spinning uh, into the dividing wall that separated the north and southbound lanes. And so uh, this happened probably 200 feet in front of us, and so I was driving. I, I got on the brakes and hit my hazard lights in hopes of stopping and, and being able to see what was going on, seeing what we could do to help. And 
couldn't have been more than a couple of seconds later, I felt the impact as we got just slammed from behind by a Dodge truck that didn't realize what was going on. And my car was just annihilated, destroyed. I mean, God was really gracious and kind. I was fine and walked away with just a few scratches and bruises, uh, even though my car was totaled. But my passenger, his name was also Josh, my friend, he was unconscious in the seat next to me. And, uh, and we called the ambulance. They came. They took him to the nearby hospital where it was determined that he had uh, bleeding in his brain. And things were very scary for a minute there. And so while we were on their way to the hospital, I called up uh, two of our friends who had been at the event with us and were driving separately back to Tallahassee, and I told them what had happened. And so they turned their car around and drove back to the hospital where we were so they could come and, and, and sit with me while we waited to hear if our friend was okay. And let me just kind of skip to the end of the page. My friend's doing fine now. He ended up having a procedure, and he's doing much better uh, to this day. He ended up being no worse for wear. But I want to tell you, I will never forget the feeling I had when I saw those doors to that hospital emergency room, waiting room open, and Josh Hinkle and Matt Schoolfield walked through those doors, and they came up to me, and they gave me a hug, and they cried with me, and they prayed with me, and then they sat with me for hours as we waited to hear what was going to happen to our friend. So much comfort, so much peace was ministered to me in that moment just by the fact that they came and they were there. You know, the church is the body of Christ. That's one of the metaphors, along with the household of God, the family of God. The church is, is the body of Christ. There's all sorts of power and richness in that metaphor. But I want you to think about this one aspect of what it means to be the body of Christ. When one part of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers along with it, right? And the rest of the body moves to respond when one member of the body is injured. And so, God forbid, after church today, you slam your hand in the car door, what's the first thing your other hand is going to do? It's going to grab and hold on tight. If you're walking and you, you step wrong and you turn your ankle and, ah, ah, it hurts to walk, what happens? Your other leg reapportions the weight of walking so that you can continue to get where you need to go. It fills in the gap so that you can continue to move forward. This is what the body of Christ does. It's what the people of God do. Job's friends show up and they minister to him with their presence and with their tears and with their silence. They enter into his suffering and they care for him. And now if that's all they did, and if the accounting of their activities ended at chapter 2, we would remember these three guys as heroes of Christian community, wouldn't we? But unfortunately, it doesn't end there. After seven days of silence and mourning, Job speaks. He pours out his soul and lament to God, and Job's friends break their silence, and they start to respond. And that's when we go from the good to the bad. Eliphaz speaks in Job chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 3. Behold, you, Job, have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not, the, is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? What's Eliphaz communicating here? He's minimizing Job's pain and suffering. It's almost like he's saying, okay, Job, seven days of silence and weeping and mourning, we did that. Now it's time to start 
moving forward, man. Rub some dirt on it. Buck up, little camper. Let's go. Don't you trust God, Job? His words make light of Job's suffering, and they indict his lament before God. So Job answers Eliphaz in chapter 6. Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed and that all my calamity laid in the balances, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore, my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He's saying, my pain is real. My suffering is deep. And in verse 14, he says this. He addresses his friend and says, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. He's saying, man, don't you see that I'm suffering here? Where's your compassion? Eliphaz is being unkind to Job. He's, he's no longer carrying Job's burdens. Now he's compounding Job's burdens. He wants to be done with the, the sobbing and the sitting and the sorrow and the silence, and he's ready to start connecting the dots for Job. He wants to put down the Kleenex and pick up his systematic theology textbook. And here's the thing. We love theology here at Four Oaks. We love truth. We think truth blesses people's lives. We think we can't live without the truth of God's Word. But we need to understand this. This is important. Theology that's not tempered and chastened by love is bad theology. Let me say that again. Theology that's not tempered and chastened by love is bad theology. And it wounds rather than heals. Bildad picks up the dialogue in chapter 8. And here's where things start to go really dark. Verse 3, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against Him, He has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. This is awful. He goes from minimizing Job's suffering to moralizing Job's suffering. He's saying, Job, you want to know why you've lost everything? It's because you're sinning. You want to know why your children died? God's delivered them into the hand of their transgression. It's devastating. We haven't heard from Zophar yet, though. Maybe Zophar can turn the ship around. What do you think? No. It just gets worse with Zophar. Chapter 11, verse 3. Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. These accusations from Job's friends go on and on and on in the chapters that follow. And as they progress, they become more and more harsh and unfeeling. And the crux of their worldview begins to emerge. And, if you, and the, the crux of their worldview is this. If you experience calamity, if suffering comes onto your house, the reason is you've done something to deserve it. They speak out of a theological system that sees a direct correlation between your suffering and your sin. And to these three men, it cannot be otherwise. Have any of you guys ever seen the TV show on the Food Network restaurant, Impossible? I see a couple of you giggling. You know how good this show is, right? 
Well, if you haven't seen it, I feel bad for you. You should check it out. So the, the premise of this, of this show is that there's this guy, his name's Robert Irvin. He's a chef, chef and a restaurateur. He's this real, real burly uh, British dude. And he goes into these failing restaurants. They're usually little mom and pop places and strip malls and places like that. And he goes into these failing restaurants and he has the dining experience. He eats their food. He sees the way that they serve their customers. He looks at their decorations. And then at the end of that, he pulls the staff together and he just annihilates them. Like, the food tasted like dog food. This place is ugly. The service was horrible. The place is dirty. This restaurant is a mess. And he just unloads on the staff at this restaurant. And usually what happens after that is like the dudes like bow up on him. Like they want to fight him because they're angry. And obviously he's like, he's huge and jacked up. So that never happens. I'd love to see it happen though. Um, I'm kidding. I don't want anyone to take a swing at Robert Irvin if he's watching. (laughs) And the ladies are all crying. Everyone's upset and they're defending their way of doing things. And Robert Irvin always inevitably comes back to your restaurant is failing. And if you want to know why, it's because you're doing all these things wrong. And of course, as the, as the show makes its way to the end, resolution comes, they adapt all of his changes, the restaurant has this grand reopening, people come from miles and miles and miles around, the line is out the door, everyone's talking about how delicious the food is, how beautiful the restaurant is, how great the service is, and $100 bills are falling from the ceiling. And the restaurant turns out to be fine. And all that happens in an hour, it's great, it's uplifting. <laughs> now, I'm not a restaurateur, and I don't, I don't know if it really is as simple as all that. I don't know if that works in the restaurant world. But I know that that doesn't work in the human soul. It is never as simple as you're doing, things, doing these things wrong and that's why you're suffering. That's why your world is falling apart around you. It never seems to be as simple as all that. Let's address the premise that lies behind the arguments that these theory friends are making. The question is this, do we suffer in direct proportion to our sinfulness? The answer is no. No, and all of their efforts to get Job to admit that he is somehow at fault, he is somehow responsible by his sin for the deep loss and suffering that he's experiencing, it's wicked. It's wicked. Tim Keller calls this retribution theology. Job wouldn't be suffering like this unless he had failed to pray, trust, and obey God in some way. It can't be otherwise to these three men. Now what's hard and what's tricky about this is that in the strictest sense, there are elements of truth in these statements, right? At times our suffering is a result of the evil deeds that we've done. And sometimes God does bring about pain and hardship and suffering in our lives to awaken us to our need for him and to draw us to repentance. I know for some of you that's your testimony of how you came to faith in Christ. God, in his mercy and in his grace, allowed you to pursue your sin and to get to the point where you finally understood and saw that you had no hope apart from him. And that was the means by which he drew you to himself. God does work that way from time to time. But to take that and then to moralize God's activity And to explain him away in such simplistic terms? God is not so easily domesticated as all that. We need to remember who God is. It's Mother's Day. Let me honor my mom. When I was a kid, she taught me the Westminster Shorter Catechism. 
And here's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers that question. What is God? God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He's God. And we're not. Why in the world would we think that humans could ascend to the heights where we could understand God? I mean, I mean, we understand a little bit about God, but we've met some humans, right? Did you know that two and a half million people still pay for AOL subscriptions for their email accounts? I saw it on the internet. It has to be true. And some of you are like, I knew there was something I was supposed to do in 2005. God's God. And we're not. That's why in Romans, the Apostle Paul spends the first 11 chapters unfolding the glory of God, his, his incredible redemptive activity in human history, and then he gets to the end of it, and he breaks out into song. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Something we need to reckon with. If we're going to be able to suffer well and to comfort those who suffer well, it's this. God is not a set of principles or propositions that can be boiled down into neat and tidy explanations for what we see and what we experience. He is not and he refuses to be. He is not a jigsaw puzzle that you set out on your dining room table on Friday night and solve by Sunday afternoon. And because he is God, he refuses to be boxed in by our feeble attempts to comprehend him and to explain him. And we will be infinitely frustrated by our efforts to explain him until we recognize that he is God and we are not. That is the fundamental truth of our existence. And for all that we can know about him, and listen, there is so much that we can know about him because he's gracious, because he's condescended, he's come down to our level and revealed himself to us in his word. He's told us some of what he is like. But for all that we can know about him, there is infinitely more that we will never be able to understand about him as long as we are limited by these finite minds and these mortal bodies. There will always be mystery in God and in his activities. And the failure to see this and to worship in light of it is the failure of Job's three friends. But this truth is what Job clings to as he contends with his friends and as he continues to make his complaint before God. Let's look at some of the things Job says very quickly. Chapter 13, verse 15, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. Chapter 19, verse 25 and 26, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. He clings tightly to his vision of God who is sovereign and just and whose ways cannot be, be explained in the midst of his circumstances. In chapter 26, Job 
comes to the end of his defense and to the end of his sharing of his perspective about who God is. And in the beginning in verse 7, he says this about God. He stretches out the north over the void. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds, and the cloud is not split open under them. He covers the face of the full moon and spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters at the boundary between light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Job laments. Job curses the day he was born. And there are moments where he walks right up to the edge of charging God with being unjust. But in the final analysis, he says, I know who I am. And I know who God is. He is sovereign. He is just. And he is too big, friends, for your simple-minded explanation. Fundamentally, the difference between Job and his friends is that Job talks relentlessly to God as he brings his complaint before him over and over again in prayer. And in contrast, as the philosopher Peter Kreeft says, Job's friends never pray, they only preach. This is so interesting. Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz expect God to show up at the end when all's said and done and commend them and condemn Job. But instead, in chapter 42, the opposite happens. God shows up and commends Job and condemns them. Chapter 42, verse 7, God speaks, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. He's speaking to Eliphaz here. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. He says, go repent and make atonement for your sins. counsel that we offer and that we hold out to hurting people should never be a minimizing or a moralizing of their suffering. Instead, the counsel and the comfort that we hold out is this. God is ultimate in your suffering and God is present in your suffering. And he holds you and he keeps you as you endure it, and he gives you the grace and the strength to wait. We see this so clearly, even in the greatest, most terrible, most unjust suffering that ever took place in human history, in the murder of Jesus Christ, God was ultimate. So Judas betrayed him. The crowds condemned him. The guards mocked and beat and murdered him. His friends abandoned him. Peter denied him. God was ultimate. 
And God was working the greatest good imaginable in the midst of the greatest suffering imaginable. God is ultimate in our suffering. And we can know, and we can hold out to others this truth as well. Jesus, who is full of grace, draws near to us in our moments of greatest suffering, and he says to us, I know what it's like. No one suffered like I did. You have a suffering Savior who is your elder brother. He's your advocate. He's your high priest. He's your keeper. And he'll never leave nor forsake you. I really want this to be helpful and applicable to us, so I just want to close with some real specific application here. Scripture tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens, that we are to comfort those who are in affliction. We are to encourage one another and to build one another up. These are commands not to fellowship group leaders or elders or deacons. It's for every believer. The call to care goes out to every person who calls on the name of the Lord. And church, we desperately want to do this well, don't we? This week I spoke to a few people in our church who I know have, sp- have suffered in significant ways over the past few years, and I asked them to give me some feedback. What were some really helpful things that people did and said, and what were some unhelpful things that people did and said? And so sort of taking that along with what we saw in Job, I want to just give you some real specific encouragements, a few do's and don'ts for how to be a good counselor and a good comforter in the midst of suffering. We'll start with the don'ts. First, don't be impatient with people. The unfolding of God's plan in people's lives is rarely accomplished in a matter of days, right? Hasn't that been your experience? It's months and years and decades. So don't expect people to get moved forward immediately. Have grace for them. Be patient with them. Don't compare their experience of suffering to someone else's experience of suffering, especially not yours. Often when we do this, we really mean well, but we need to be careful that the suffering of others doesn't create an opportunity for us fundamentally to to talk about some tangentially related suffering we've experienced. Every person suffers in their own way. Don't appoint yourself as the chief dot connector for their lives by theologizing and speculating about the why of what they're experiencing. Resist that temptation. And most of all, guys, don't be cruel. Don't say things like, well, you just need to have better quiet times. And you just need to preach the gospel to yourself and your suffering will go away. Anybody ever told you that before? Don't tell them they just need to trust God more. Instead, here are some do's. Do be present and be quiet. Tears and hugs and little notes at church go a long, long way. And they minister in a profound way. If you're close with that person, make an appointment with them like Job's friends did and go sit and just weep with them. Do take care of their physical needs. Make meals. Help get kids carted around to and from school and to events. Go clean their house. Give them gift cards. Give them cash. Cut their grass. You know, when you're experiencing that that moment of your greatest suffering, just the day-to-day responsibilities of being an adult can just feel crushing. So bear those burdens. Take care of their physical needs. Do listen. Let them talk. If they need to go Job 3, let them go Job 3. 
Make, make your, your life and your presence be a safe place for them to say, I wish I was never born. This is awful. And if the time to speak does come, seek to move from why to who. Remind them that God is good, he's with them, and he's for them. And finally, do pray. Pray, 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 pray. And I don't mean pray in like a perfunctory, like, oh man, sorry, like I'll pray for you, sort of way. That's not what I'm talking about. When we talk about prayer, it's important that we are reminded constantly of what that is. Prayer is taking up the privileged access that we have to the God of the universe who rules and reigns sovereignly. When we come into his presence, he sees us as his son and as his daughter, and he delights to hear our requests. So take up that privileged access that you have. Go to your father. Ask him to work in their situation. Ask him to pour out his mercy and his grace. Take it up and plead with him on their behalf. It's my prayer that that we would be a people who suffer well together, not just because of what we know to be true about God, not just because of God's presence among us when we suffer, but also because we love and care for one another well when suffering comes. This church has been in existence since 1990, and we've suffered a lot in those years together, haven't we? And we know as well that if the Lord tarries, we're going to continue to suffer together. May we be ready to love well when it does. May no one be able to say what Job said about his friends in Job chapter 16. He says, miserable comforters are you all. May we not do that. May we love and serve one another well in the midst of suffering for the sake of our perseverance and our endurance together and for the display of the beauty of our great Savior. All God's people said, amen. Let's pray.